is Wealth Wake Up with Dick Donahue on KGMI News Talk 790, 96.5 FM in Bellingham and KGMI.com. Welcome to Wealth Wake Up. Dick Donahue with you this Sunday morning here on KGMI. As always, we thank you for being with us. Don't fall for the third quarter head fake. You know, we have plenty of data reports to go, but so far the third quarter is shaping up to be a strong one for the U.S. economy. The Atlanta Fed's GDP Now model is tracking a real GDP growth rate of 4.9% for the third quarter, which would be the fastest quarterly growth rate since the earlier part of the COVID recovery. However, we would not get too excited about what's happening in the third quarter, and we don't think that one quarter of strong economic growth means a recession is off the table. With all the oddities of the COVID era, first overly strict lockdowns and then overly gradual reopenings, it's entirely possible that the GDP reports are exhibiting some seasonality, where certain quarters look better than the underlying economy really is. The third quarter is when children typically go back to school, for example, but unfortunately, they did that less so during COVID. As a result, normal back-to-school behaviors might make the economy look extra strong for now. And to put some numbers on this, statistical adjustments to retail sales called seasonal adjustments subtracted 1.8% from the reported sales in July of 19 prior to pandemic shutdowns. Back-to-school spending in July, much like Christmas, makes for some big spending months, and the statisticians adjust the numbers down. But in 2021 and 22, July sales fell because so many schools were closed. This reversed the seasonals, and this July of 23, seasonal adjustments added 1.4% reported sales. We think this is distorting our view of the economy. Meanwhile, the economy is likely feeling the last positive remnants of the surge of money supply in 2021. The lags between monetary policy and the economy have always been long and variable, as Milton Friedman taught us. Beyond the third quarter, the economy is likely to show more of the effects of the drop of the second quarter M2 measure of money supply from mid-22 through early 23. Another reason we think the third quarter is a head fake is that deficit spending by the federal government is very unlikely to expand in 24 like it has in 23. Were it not for President Biden announcing his student loan debt forgiveness plan last year, the budget deficit would have been 4% of GDP in the fiscal year of 22, high but not extraordinary. And if it hadn't been for the Supreme Court striking down that plan this year, the deficit would have been about 7.8% of GDP for the fiscal year of 2023, well beyond even the highest deficit under President Reagan in the 1980s, and while the unemployment rate is averaging about 3.6%. The rise in the deficit of almost 4 percentage points of GDP with the unemployment rate so low is unprecedented. Other prior leaps in deficit of this magnitude have been during major wars or recessions, not when the U.S. is at peace and unemployment rate is unusually low. In particular, the way some of the extra deficit spending is structured looks designed to temporarily and artificially boost economic growth. The CHIPS Act, for example, is encouraging private investment in chip manufacturing facilities in the U.S. So far this year through July, private spending to construct manufacturing facilities in the computer, electronic, and electrical sectors up 228% versus the same period in 22. But these buildings don't have to be rebuilt every year. Sometime soon, the gains in this sector will dwindle and reverse with collateral damage in other sectors like trucking. To be clear, we do not believe that government spending is a positive for long-term growth. In fact, it often distorts and diminishes overall activity. However, in the short term, as we saw during COVID and apparently this year as well, it can make the economy look stronger than it really is. A price will be paid, as will the extra stimulus wears off and a recession is highly likely. We don't see how it is to be avoided. The next recession is unlikely to be as devastating as the ones in 08 and 09 or 2020, but our view remains that a recession could well be on the way. And looking at our global roundup for the week, 
We're seeing that stock and bond slide steady as inflation cools. Tightening financial conditions undermined stocks early in the week as interest rates, the dollar, and commodities all rose. However, markets stabilized late in the week, buoyed by improved inflation readings in the United States and the Eurozone. The yield on the 10-year U.S. Treasury note surged as high as 4.68% early Thursday before easing to around 4.5% on Friday. The price of a barrel of West Texas Intermediate Crude Oil brushed $95 on Thursday before easing to $91.75, which was a gain of about a buck and a quarter for the week. Volatility is measured by the CBOE Volatility Index, or VIX, reached 18.8 on Thursday before settling down around 16.4, falling slightly from levels seen a week ago. And looking at our global macro news, we're seeing that booties is warning that the shutdown by the U.S. could be a credit negative. If the fiscal year were to draw to close yesterday, as it did, without Congress having passed appropriation bills or a continuing resolution making a near-term partial government shutdown, shutdowns, well, they aren't rare, but there have been 20 since 1976. They tend to last, though the last one in 2018 lasted 35 days. Economists estimate that about 0.02% is shaved from GDP for each week that the government remains shuttered, but almost all of that is recouped once a funding bill is passed. Congress may have a little extra incentive to quickly come to a resolution this time as Moody's. The last credit rating agency to rate U.S. government debt, AAA, has warned that a pattern of government dysfunction in Washington is a credit negative. One immediate downside for markets will be the absence of government economic data, which would keep both investors and the U.S. Federal Reserve in the dark. And we're seeing that U.S. home sales are dipping and slipping and mortgage rates are soaring. And new home sales for the U.S. fell 8.7% in August from the month before, while pending home sales declined 7.1%, dropping 18.8% compared with the same month a year ago. Existing home sales reported last week fell 7 tenths of 1% month over month. So despite the sales slump, the Case-Shiller Home Price Index rose 7 tenths of a percent in July from the month before, but it fell 1 tenth of 1% year over year. All this occurred against a backdrop of rising mortgage rates and the bank rate average for 30-year U.S. fixed loan rates hitting 7.83% this week. That is the highest level since mid-2000. And we're seeing that China says that more easing is on the way. China's central bank said on Wednesday that it would step up its policy adjustments and implement monetary policy in a precise and forceful manner to support an economy whose recovery, it was said, was improving with increasing momentum. The People's Bank of China will keep liquidity reasonably ample and maintain stable credit expansion, it said in a statement after a quarterly meeting of its Monetary Policy Committee. China's property sector woes intensified this week as embattled developer Evergrande was forced to halt restructuring of some of its debt because regulators have prohibited the company from issuing notes while it's under investigation. The MSCI China Real Estate Index fell 6.75% in September. And the U.S. auto workers have started to moderate their demands. Having begun negotiations by asking for a 40% raise and an array of additional benefits, the United Auto Workers have moderated their wage demands to an increase of 30%. The big three Detroit automakers have each offered a 20% raise over four years, with Ford offering to reinstate a cost-of-living formula that did away with amid the global financial crisis in 2009. The UAW says that it will expand the strike, which has gone on for more than two weeks if the companies do not sweeten their offers. The strike is one of several headwinds facing the U.S. economy as the last quarter begins. Two others are the restart of student loan payments and the impending government shutdown. And the Fed's preferred consumption expenditure price index rose a smaller than expected one-tenth of one percent in August. That's the smallest monthly rise since November 20 and gained 3.9 percent from the year before, which is the smallest gain since June of 21 and down from an upwardly revised 4.3 percent in July. The closely watched core services except housing measure rose 0.14% August, a tamer reading than the uptick seen the month before. Continued inflation moderation would allow the Fed to remain on the monetary sidelines. Dick Donahue with you with Wealth Wake Up here on KGMI. We'll be back shortly. 
Western Solar installs Panasonic solar panels with the longest and most comprehensive warranty in the industry that includes all labor and replacement material for 25 years. Only a handful of contractors in the entire Pacific Northwest have been able to meet Panasonic standards to qualify for their triple guard warranty. Western Solar is the highest category of installer within Panasonic's program. Western Solar is locally owned and operated, and they strive to go above and beyond to make sure their customers are as happy as this recent reviewer. Western Solar was great to work with. I recommend them to anyone looking to get solar. They were the only installers that came out and took specific gauge readings of my roof and power situation. They gave detailed information on my options and the tax break I could receive. They were also very quick to respond with my questions and needs for my system. Thinking about solar? Call Western Solar. They're your local experts with over 2,000 residential and commercial installations for over 20 years. Schedule your free estimate online at westernsolarinc.com. Listening to KGMI and playing a grand in your hand gives you a chance to win $1,000 every weekday. But what if you don't? Well, you're still eligible for the second chance drawing. Playing a grand in your hand, presented by Neater House of Luxury, automatically qualifies you for a second chance drawing. A prize package totaling more than $1,200 with a weekend getaway at Lopez Islander Resort and Blackout Golf for 10 at Volley. Visit KGMI.com for details. Tuning into the high school football game. Monitoring the incoming storm. They say what I think, but smarter. Catching your favorite talk show. These are just few of the reasons more than 80 million Americans depend on AM radio. And AM radio is the backbone of the emergency alert system, keeping you and your family safe in dangerous times. Visit wearebroadcasters.com to learn more and tell us how you depend on AM radio stations like KGMI. The opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of KGMI or the Cascade Radio Group. If tomorrow all the things were gone, I'd work for all my life. And I had to start again with just my children and my wife. Welcome back to Wealth Wake Up. Dick Donahue with you this Sunday morning. We're Asset Advisors. We are located out on the Pacific Highway in the Pacific Commerce Center next to Wilson's Furniture. That's about halfway out to Ferndale, north of Bellingham, north of the Slater Road on your right. And our address here is 5060 Pacific Highway, Suite 101, Ferndale, 98248. Our phone number, 360-733-1200. And continuing on with some of our global wrap-up, we're going to give a few quick hits right now. And we saw a 4.3% rise in Eurozone year-over-year inflation in September, which was the smallest since October of 21. Core inflation slipped from 4.5% down from 5.3% in August. The European Central Bank indicated at its meeting earlier this month that the tightening cycle has likely reached its peak. And these data helped buttress this view. We saw the volume of global mergers and acquisitions hit its lowest level in a decade on the dearth of private equity activity, according to data from LSE Group. The Wall Street Journal reported Thursday that preparations are intensifying for a summit late this year in Washington between U.S. President Joe Biden and China's President Xi Jinping. Senior Chinese officials will visit the U.S. Capitol in coming weeks to prepare for the summit, which is meant to improve turbulent relations between the countries. The yield on the 10-year Japanese government bond reached its highest level in a decade this week at 0.77%. The backup in yields prompted the Bank of Japan to announce an unscheduled bond buying operation or to slow the advance. And the U.S. economy grew 2.1% in the second quarter, according to revised data released on Thursday. And while the top line did not change, the contribution from consumer spending was revised down, while the contribution from increased inventories was revised higher. The U.S. Energy Information Agency reports that stockpiles of crude oil at a key storage hub in Cushing, Oklahoma, have dropped to their lowest level in more than a year and fell close to historic lows. And the S&P Global Ratings this week downgraded 293 U.S. companies. That's up from 253 in the second quarter and that's the most since 2020. 
and the Federal Bank of New York's measure of term premium, which is the compensation that investors require for bearing the risk that interest rates may change over the life of a bond, turned positive this week for the first time since 2021. We saw Australia's Consumer Price Index rose 5.2% in August. That's up from 4.9% a month ago on high prices for energy and rent, putting a potential rate hike before the Reserve Bank of Australia back on the table before year-end. The U.S. Federal Trade Commission and 17 U.S. states sued Amazon on Tuesday, alleging the online retailer illegally wields monopoly power that keeps prices artificially high. It locks sellers into its platform and it harms rivals. And the five main German economic institutes forecast a GDP contraction of 0.6% in 2023 and 1.3% growth in 2024. The Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco estimates that the bottom 80% of wage earners have exhausted their cash savings and now have less in savings than they did before the pandemic. European Central Bank President Christine Lagarde said this week that both the level of interest rates and the period of time that remain restrictive are central considerations of the ECB's inflation fight. We saw that credit card issues are experiencing the fastest increase in loaning losses since the global financial crisis, according to a report from Goldman Sachs. Take a closer look at that second quarter GDP report, the final report for the quarter. And the final reading for real GDP growth in the second quarter ended up matching last month's reading, but the mix of growth has changed. A large downward revision in consumer spending, mainly in services, offset upward revisions to commercial construction, net exports, inventories, and home buildings. We also received comprehensive revisions to GDP and related data going back many years in some cases. Current dollar measures of nominal GDP and related components were revised from the first quarter of 13 through the first quarter of 23. Gross domestic income, or GDI, and selected income components were revised back to 1979. All in all, the updated estimates show that real GDP increased at an average rate of 2.2% from 2017 to 22, only a tenth of a percentage point more than previously estimated. We also got our second look at economy-wide corporate profits for the second quarter, which were revised higher, now up two-tenths of one percent from the first quarter, but still down 2.7 percent from a year ago. The government includes Federal Reserve profits in these data, and the Fed is generating unprecedented turret losses. So we'll follow profits excluding those earned for or lost by the Fed, which are still up 6.2 percent from a year ago. Looking at the benchmark revisions to prior years, profits are now 13% higher than originally estimated. That is great news. But even with new higher profits, our capitalized profits model still shows the market could be overvalued some. We find that we would need to see the 10-year Treasury yield at around 3.5% to be fairly valued today. Moving forward, we expect declines or small gains in corporate profits and the economy continues to renormalize profits after the massive fiscal and monetary stimulus in 20 and 21. In turn, this will be a headwind for equities. In addition to corporate profits, we also got a look at the second quarter for real gross domestic income, which is an alternative to GDP, which is just as accurate. Real GDP was revised higher, rising 7 tenths of 1% annual rate in the second quarter, up only 2 tenths of 1% versus a year ago, consistent with underlying economic weakness. These are figures that are normally seen in and around recessions. Regarding monetary policy, the inflation outlook has improved. GDP inflation was revised lower to 1.7% annual rate in the second quarter versus prior estimate of 2. However, GDP prices are up 3.5% from a year ago, still well above the Fed's 2% target. Meanwhile, nominal GDP, which is real GDP inflation plus inflation, rose at a 3.8% annual rate in the second quarter, is up 5.9% from a year ago. And then in employment news, initial claims for jobless benefits rose 2,000 last week to 204,000. Continuing claims rose 12,000 to 1.670 million. And these figures are consistent with further growth in the labor market in September.
August's new home sales report also came out this week. And new home sales remain choppy, posting a widely expected decline as the housing market tries to digest the recent rise in mortgage rates. Sales have generally been an upward trend in the past year and now up 24.3% from the low in July of 22. However, they still remain well below the pandemic highs of 20. The main issue for U.S. housing market remains affordability. If you assume a 20% down payment, the rise in mortgage rates since the Federal Reserve began its current tightening cycle amounts to a 30% increase in monthly payments on a new 30-year mortgage for the median new home. The 30-year mortgage rates currently sitting around above 7.5%. For the first time in two decades, financing costs remain a headwind. The good news for potential buyers is that median sales price for new homes has fallen by 13.4% from its peak late last year, which had re- until recently helped sales activity on homes recover. However, it's important to note that the drop in median prices is likely due to a mix of homes on the market, including more lower-priced options as developers complete smaller properties. For example, the supply of completed single-family homes is up 150% versus the bottom of 22 this contrast with the market of existing homes, which continues to struggle with an inventory problem, often due to the difficulty of convincing current homeowners to give up the low fixed rate mortgages that they locked in during the pandemic. This does not mean that housing is getting more affordable per square foot, with the Census Bureau reporting that median prices on the basis are up 45% between 2019 to 22. That's the most recent data available. Though not a recipe for significant rebound, more inventories giving buyers a wider array of options will help put a floor under sales activity. One problem with assessing home housing activity is that the Federal Reserve held interest rates artificially low for more than a decade. With rates now in a more normal range, the sticker shock on mortgage rates for potential buyers is very real. However, we've had strong housing markets with rates at current levels in the past, and homeowners will eventually adjust. In other news on home prices, the National Case-Shiller Index and the FHFA Index rose six-tenths of one percent and eight-tenths of one percent, respectively, in July. Notably, both indices now show home prices are at a new all-time high. In recent manufacturing news, the Richmond Fed Index, which is a measure of mid-Atlantic factory activity, rebounded to plus 5 in September from minus 7 in August. Dick Donahue with you with Wealth Wake Up here on KGMI. We will be back shortly. We don't have the usual traffic jams that they have in the big city, but sometimes things happen to snarl everything up. Depend on KGMI to keep you cruising to your destination with KGMI Traffic Alerts. We'll tell you where the trouble spots are. And if you see problems on the road, give us a call at 360-676-5464 so we can spread the word. KGMI News Talk 790, 96.5 FM, and KGMI.com. Keep up with what's happening in Linden with Bo Wild and the Linden Hometown News on KGMI. Further north on the guys, if you look back toward Linden's door, you'll see some clearing and some building going on. There is a fuel station and stores going in there. It's brought to you by Rustler's Front Street Grill and the Rusty Wagon in Linden. Stop by today for breakfast, lunch, or dinner. Downtown on Front Street and on Hannigan, just north of Pole Road. Bo knows Linden and so will you with the Linden Hometown News. Mondays on the KGMI Morning. News. We all know the large national insurance companies like Progressive that have Flo and The Box as actors in the commercials on TV. Did you know you can get Progressive coverage through local insurance agency? I'm Derek, and my wife Denise and I own D&D Insurance in Ferndale. We represent several national companies, Progressive being one of them. We have access to amazing national rates with a local feel. So if you're needing to make a claim at 1 a.m., you can do that. If you would like to come into the office and talk with an agent directly, you can do that too. We may not have a famous TV star as an agent, but we have some amazing agents. So if you're a contractor, landscaper, food truck business operator, or a family who has fun in the sun with a camper, boat, and toys, let the agents at DD Insurance help protect your business and your belongings. Give us a call at 392-8159. You can also look us up at dndinsurance.com or meet us at the office in Ferndale. We look forward to meeting you at DD Insurance. 
Why West Edge Credit Union? Because they're all about the community. Of course, I like that West Edge has low interest rates and loan specials. But what I really love is that West Edge partners with local nonprofit and city of them organizations. Plus, they put on events like Community Shred, and they talk to me like I'm a real person, not an account number. West Edge really cares. Join West Edge Credit Union today. West Edge is federally insured by NCUA. West Edge Credit Union, on the corner of James and Alabama in Bellingham. This is Jake at Vineyard Park of Linden Manor Assisted Living. While the world has changed, the needs of our seniors have not. At Vineyard Park of Linden Manor, we offer independent and assisted living as well as memory care. It's your private apartment. You don't live at our work. We work in your home. We offer 24-hour nursing services, weekly housekeeping, anytime dining, on-site beauty salon, and activities to keep both mind and body young. Find value in community living. Visit our website at carepartnersliving.com and schedule your personal tour today. Discover the authentic taste of Mexico this week with PNW Perks at Jalapeno's Mexican Family Restaurants in Bellingham. Jalapeno's offers daily lunch and dinner specials with happy hour all day Sunday through Thursday, always crafted with care and tradition. Jalapeno's uses only the freshest ingredients to bring you a truly delightful dining experience in a relaxing, festive atmosphere. They've been doing it proudly for nearly 25 years. Having a party or a gathering? Jalapeno's caters. Delivery or full service offerings for a few or a few hundred. Even better, let Jalapeno bring the fiesta to you in their brand new 26-foot taco bus. Jalapeno's Mexican Family Restaurants with four locations. Find them in Barclay Village, Fairhaven, on Bellingham's downtown waterfront and open now at their new location on Meridian. This Thursday at 8 a.m. with PNW Perks, you can get a $50 gift certificate to Jalapeno's in Bellingham for just $25. That's $25 in free tacos. Get all the details at pnwperks.com and get there fast this Thursday. I'm Tumani. When I was younger, I may have did some stupid things. I committed some crimes, even got shot, but I'm not a criminal. That's right. I'm Jamal. I work for youth advocate programs. Yeah, I was Tumani's advocate, helping him stay out of jail, stay in the neighborhood, get a job, and work hard to see a better future for himself. If you have a change of mindset, you can have a change of action. As a little kid, I experienced trauma and I acted out. Made some mistakes, but I'm not a mistake. No, she's a good student and a great kid. As Jalen's YAP advocate, I'm always here for her. With the youth advocate programs, I was able to connect with Jalen. YAP is a community-based alternative to youth incarceration, congregate placement, and neighborhood violence. After completing our program, 86% of participants were arrest-free. YAP works. And now, I'm a YAP advocate, helping kids like me find a better way. Youth advocate programs. Others talk social change. We make it happen. Learn how at yapinc.org. The latest local news and important topics of the day from the West Mechanical Studio. Tired of inefficient heating, poor indoor air quality, and rising energy bills? Contact West Mechanical today to explore going ductless with a system from Mitsubishi Electric Heating and Air Conditioning. Find them at westmechanical.net. Get the latest news and information 24-7 with KGMI News Talk 790, 96.5 FM in Bellingham and KGMI.com. Welcome back to Wealth Wake Up. Dick Donahue with you this Sunday morning here on KGMI. Going to continue on with this week's economic news. We had the August durable goods report come in as well. And durable goods orders surprised to the upside in August with growth across most major categories. The only notable weakness came from commercial aircraft where a June surge in orders was tempered over the past two months. The decline for commercial aircraft orders down 15.9% in August was partially offset in the transportation category by rising orders for defense aircraft, motor vehicles, and parts. If you strip out the typically volatile transportation category and orders for durable goods rose a moderate four-tenths of 1% in August, with gains across most major categories. Machinery led the ex-transportation orders higher rising a half a percent in August, while fabricated metal products were up a half a percent, electrical equipment up 1.1 percent, and computers and electronic products were up three-tenths of one percent. Primary metals products were the lone major category to decline outside the transportation sector, down six-tenths of one percent. Arguably, the most important number in the report is core shipments. That's a key input for business investment in the calculation of GDP, which rose seven-tenths of a percent in August. 
If that's unchanged this month, core shipments would rise to a 1.1% annualized rate in the third quarter versus a second quarter average. Core shipment growth has been slowing since the start of 22. We expect this trend will continue as the economy feels the lagged effects of the Federal Reserve's action to remove money from the system. In the past year, orders for durable goods were up 3.5%, while orders for excluding transportation were up a more modest 1.1%. When you consider that producer prices for capital equipment are up 3.8% in the last year, it means that orders have declined when adjusted for inflation. A number of factors are likely to keep the path forward rocky as we close out 23. A tighter Federal Reserve, the tightening of lending standards following stress in the banking sector, and withdrawal symptoms following the COVID-era economic morphine that artificially boosted both consumer and business spending. In addition, the return towards services means a large portion of the goods-related activity will soften in the year ahead, even as some durables from facilities services recover. While the data to date have shown continued economic growth, we believe a recession is likely before the end of 24. Finally, we got data on the M2 money supply, which declined two-tenths of 1% in August, is down 3.7% from a year ago. Monetary policy operates with a lag. We are likely to feel the negative economic effects of these declines as we move into the months ahead. And we got the August personal income and consumption report out this week as well. And continued growth in income, spending, and prices should continue to keep the Fed on its toes. The best news in this report was that incomes rose four-tenths of 1% in August. They're up 4.8% in the last year, led by gains in private sector wages and salaries, which are up a half percent of the month and 5.6% year over year. Growth in consumer spending matched the growth in income in August, rising four-tenths of 1% with healthy spending across both goods and services. Good spendings rose six-tenths of 1% in the month, or up 2.9% in the past year, while real inflation-adjusted spending on goods is up 2.1%. Spending on services rose four-tenths of 1% in August. It's also up 7.4% in the last year, but up 2.4% when adjusted for inflation. The transition in dollars spent back towards services has remained an ongoing theme. Given the surge in goods activity and the inflation in goods prices, going during COVID. We do expect that good spending will struggle to keep pace as the economy continues to shift back towards more normal mix of activity. On the inflation front, PCE prices, which is the Federal Reserve's preferred measure of inflation, rose four-tenths of 1% in August. That's pushing the 12-month comparison up to 3.5%. That's a second move higher for a year ago comparison in as many months. So we need to look upward move for September given the continued rise in oil prices. And core inflation, which excludes food and energy, is up 3.9% versus a year ago. Note that the Fed also watches a subset of inflation dubbed the super core, which is services only, no goods, excluding food, energy, and housing. That measure rose a tenth of 1% in August, is up 4.4% versus a year ago. That's down less than a percentage point from the 5.2% in August after a half percent increase in July. And plugging these figures into our models suggests that existing home sales will be down in September. In manufacturing news, the Kansas City Fed Index, which is a measure of factory activity in that area, fell to minus 8 in September after a reading of zero in August, while the Chicago PMI, which is a measure of business activity, fell to 44.1 in September from 48.7 in August. We expect next week's national manufacturing report to come in at around 48, also signaling contraction. And let's see here, we're going to talk a little bit about what's happening with how this rise in oil prices could, could be a problem for the Fed's soft landing because the Federal Reserve is confronting a familiar nemesis as it tries to pilot the economy into a rarely seen soft landing, and that is rising oil prices. Surging energy costs played a role in tipping the U.S. into a recession in mid-70s, as well as early 80s and 90s. As they drove up inflation, they robbed consumers of their purchasing power. Driven by cutbacks in supply by Saudi Arabia and Russia, Oil prices have surged by almost 30% since June, 
with a benchmark crude oil topping $91 a barrel. Though prices are still well below their 2022 highs, the latest rise poses risk to the Fed as it seeks to return inflation to its 2% target without triggering an economic downturn. Supply shocks such as climbing oil prices present the Fed with a quandary as they simultaneously boost inflation and curb economic growth, leaving policymakers at times uncertain about whether to tighten or loosen credit in response. The question is becoming particularly salient now as the central bank debates whether or not it should raise its benchmark rate once more this year before going on hold for an extended period. Traditionally, the Fed has tended to play down its impact of higher oil prices on inflation, viewing that the effect was transitory. That's one reason why officials focus on core inflation, which strips out volatile food and energy costs when mapping out monetary policy. In August, consumer prices jumped six-tenths of one percent, registering the fastest monthly increase in over a year. Higher gasoline costs accounted for more than half of that advance, Core prices, in contrast, rose three-tenths of one percent. So the Fed is going to try to look through this shock. The drag on spending may be even seen as a welcome development, since it's coming in at a time when growth has been running stronger than when the central bank had expected. Policymakers are going to be on a high alert for gasoline-driven rise in inflation expectations in particular, as they fear they could lead to more broad-based increases in prices. So far, it's not happening, but U.S. consumers' inflation expectations instead fell in early September to the lowest levels in more than two years, according to preliminary results of the University of Michigan's monthly survey of households, which was published on September 15th. There are even signs that consumers have become more tactical in their purchases, waiting for discounts and promotions before they run out and buy something. Still, some Fed watchers doubt that the impact on inflation ultimately will prove so benign. The excess savings that households build up during the pandemic probably will be exhausted this quarter, according to researchers at the San Francisco Fed, and credit card delinquencies are rising, though still well below pre-pandemic levels. A resumption of student loan payments in this month in October is also going to help curb expending. But the fine-tuning the market may not be easy. Even if Saudi Arabia and Russia relax their supply curbs in early 24, oil inventories will be severely depleted and leaving prices vulnerable to shocks, the International Energy Agency said in September 13th report. The U.S. Strategic Petroleum Reserve has been on rundown by massive sales after Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which means Washington now has less supply to release to counter sudden price surges. This leaves the government officials and investors alike hoping that the rise in oil prices will soon short-circuit on its own. We'll have to see what happens on all of this. This is Dick Donahue with you with Wealth Wake Up here on KGMI. We're going to go ahead and take a break. We'll be back shortly. Get local news, weather, sports, and all the information you need instantly. KGMI News Talk 790, 96.5 FM in Bellingham, and at KGMI.com. How does year-round comfort sound? Whether you're too hot or too cold, eliminate comfort challenges with a new Daikin heat pump or AC. Hi, I'm Brad Barron, CEO at Barron Heating, AC Electrical and Plumbing, and I'm thrilled to introduce our latest offer. Same as cash, pay no interest, and no payments for 12 months. As we say goodbye to summer, don't say goodbye to adding cooling just yet. Now is the perfect time to upgrade your home comfort system. And the best part is you can lock in 2023 prices and pay nothing until next year. But here's the real kicker. Same as cash applies to heating, cooling, as well as solar, generators, tankless water heaters, and more. And with Barron's special financing, enjoy zero interest and no payments for a full year. At Barron, we understand the value of your time and budget. That's why we offer short wait times and fast track installation. Call Barron today for a free estimate. So long summer, hello savings. Barron, your full service HVAC electrical and plumbing contractor. Our mission, improving lives. The Seahawks are back at home on Sunday, October 22nd against the division rival Arizona Cardinals, and we want to send you to Lumen Field with two tickets to cheer on the Hawks. It's easy to enter. Just go to this station's website and click the contest tab. Then fill out a registration form, and you'll be entered to win a pair of tickets to see the Hawks host the Cardinals on October 22nd. Sweepstakes live until October 20th at 10 a.m. One entry per person. 
Find details and enter at this station's website. Go Hawks! We stand on the shoulders of the women who came before us. Women who were told they were bad with money. Women who couldn't even get a credit card without a man co-signing. Women who fought for their own financial futures. And now it's our turn to lead the way. Join us at WeSaySaveIt.org. Where women of all ages and all budgets are learning how to save for retirement. You work hard. You make money. Now make that money work for you. Invest in yourself at WeSaySaveIt.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. Cause there ain't no doubt I love this land. God bless the USA. Welcome back to Wealth Wake Up. Dick Donahue with you. Got questions for me? You can always give me a call. 360-733-1200. And we do really appreciate you out there listening to us. And we're finding that the IRS is going to put out an e-filing mandate for large cash transactions. Basically, they say that business owners need to know that many companies need to be required to start reporting electronically, report cash payments over $10,000 starting January 1st of next year. Federal law requires a person to record transactions of $10,000 on Form 8300. A person, the IRS says, is an individual, a company, a corporation, a partnership, an association, a trust, or an estate. Tax-exempt organizations are also persons and may need to report certain transactions, though waivers are available for some companies. The move is part of an effort to deter tax invasion as well as to streamline filing. The requirement to file Form 8300 for cash payments over $10,000 has existed for many years, but the filing is often done in a paper filing format. These latest regulations require that a Form 8300 must now be filed electronically as a business may do with some of its other tax filings. The IRS and FinCEN also reduce the number of tax returns thresholds when electronic tax filing is required. Businesses may not be, or you may not be, up to speed with the new filing requirement of Form 8300. The e-filing threshold for the number of information type returns has dropped to 10 in 2024 from 250 in the current year. Other tax forms, such as the W-2 or Form 1099 series, which are filed with the IRS, are included in the number of information tax returns that are being filed. The more forms a business has, the more likelihood that they'll exceed that threshold of 10 returns, thus requiring the use of electronic filing, including Form 8300. What taxpayers may also not realize is that the Form 8300 is not electronically filed with the IRS, but with the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, or FinCEN, as the form is used to combat money laundering and other criminal behavior. The 8300 filed late and by paper may be missed. E-filing makes it a lot easier for them to track. Also beginning next year, digital assets will be treated as cash for filing an 8300, though the IRS hasn't issued guidelines on how the 8300 is going to apply to digital assets. By the end of October, the IRS intends to open examinations of 75 of the largest partnerships, hedge and private equity firms, REITs, law firms, and others, and to mail inquiry notices to 500 partnerships with a balance sheet discrepancies. The IRS has recently pledged to use its influx of funding from the Inflation Reduction Act passed in 2022 to modernize its technology for more efficient return processing. The agency also has pledged to crack down on rich and international tax cheats. High-wealth individuals and related partnerships I've already noticed an IRS increase in the level of enforcement. So we're going to continue to watch what's going on there, but it's going to continue to happen. Well, I get a lot of questions all the time. I'm going to go ahead and answer one here. And it's basically, they wanted to know if they could transfer a house to a descendant, if it would affect their Medicaid eligibility. And basically, the question they had is, my father bought a house with my niece six years ago. Both their names were on the deed but the 120000 payment down payment was entirely his. In August of 22, he gave the home to her for nothing. My father is likely to need a nursing home during the next 6 to 12 months, and I have questions about the Medicaid disqualification period. 
Will it be based on the $120,000 that he paid for it or the fair market value in 2022? Is the fair market value amount based on property tax valuation? Is the transfer penalty still calculated as one month for every $12,000 that's being transferred? And basically, they have a right to be concerned. The transfer of a half interest in the house from your father to your niece will cause him to be ineligible for Medicaid for Medicaid for some time. The length of such a transfer penalty is the value of the transfer divided by the average cost of the nursing home care in the state. In determining value, the Medicaid agency uses the fair market value at the time of the transfer, not the property's purchase price. They are unlikely to use the tax assessed values because they're often low. They are more likely to use Zillow or request either a formal appraisal or an estimate of value by a local real estate broker. The state Medicaid agency is required to adjust the divisor for determining the length of the transfer penalty to reflect annual increases in the average cost of nursing home care. But let's assume, for purposes in this example, that the average cost of nursing home is $12,000 a month. Let's also assume that the cost in question, the house in question, doubled in value after its purchase, so the fair market value was now $240,000. Since your niece already owned half the house, the transfer under these assumptions would cause 10 months of ineligibility for Medicaid or the $120,000 share of the value in the father's name divided by 12000 which is the monthly cost. That means he would not be eligible for Medicaid for 10 months. Unfortunately, the 10-month penalty period will not begin until the father actually enters a nursing home and spends down the rest of his savings. This could leave the facility unpaid for a period of time, which would be unfair to it. But there is a workaround. Fortunately, in the Medicaid law, your niece can cure the transfer by deeding one-half interest of the house back to her grandfather. Then Medicaid would treat the situation as if the original conveyance didn't ever happen. She should make sure the new deed states that they are joint tenants with rights of survivorship, not tenants in common. There are two potential problems with taking this step. First, if the niece no longer wanted to live in the house and sold it, half the proceeds would go to her father and would be paid to the nursing home. Second, after your father's death, the house would be subject to Medicaid estate recovery. State Medicaid programs are required to seek repayment of their expenses from the estates of the deceased Medicaid beneficiaries. This is known as an estate recovery. Some states only seek such recovery from the probate estate assets of the deceased beneficiaries. Others seek recovery from the non-probate assets as well. So in this case, if a father and the niece live in a state that only recovers against probate property, the house is in joint names, it won't go through probate when your father dies and will not be subject to claim. If the house were held as tenants in common, your father's share would be subject to a claim in all states. That's why they should put it back in joint names. Finally, the house is subject to a clean estate recovery, but be aware that every Medicaid estate recovery program has provisions for hardship waivers. If your niece is low income, she may qualify for that exception. So a little bit more homework needs to take place for you to help determine exactly what you can and cannot do. Also, IRS came out with relief this year for the SECURE Act for designated beneficiaries. So you won't owe tax on required minimum distributions for 21 or 23. If you did not take the failures, you won't owe that the excise tax or penalty. The Internal Revenue Service issued Notice 2354. They waived the excise tax on 23 required distributions failures committed by designated beneficiaries. This extends the waiver already provided for 21 and 22. These waivers fit the narrowly defined benefiting class of beneficiaries. Taxpayers who don't qualify but try to take advantage of these waivers might find that they owe the IRS excess tax and applies to RMD shortfalls. So, like owners of individual retirement accounts, beneficiaries are going to owe the IRS excise tax on any RMDs that they don't take by an applicable deadline. For a beneficiary, RMD obligations are determined by multiple factors, including whether the beneficiary is a designated beneficiary, an eligible designated beneficiary, or a non-designated beneficiary. The age of the IRA owner at death whether the IRA owner died after 2019, 
the Setting Every Community Up for Retirement Enhancement Act of 2019, or what we call Secure Act 1, became effective, also has its own determining factors. The recently issued IRS Notice 2354 focuses only on designated beneficiaries who inherited IRS, not including Ross, after 2019, and the owner died on or after the date the supposed starting started taking RMDs. Designated beneficiaries are individuals and qualified see-through trusts who don't qualify as eligible designated beneficiaries. Well, designated beneficiary who inherits an IRA after 2019 must distribute it by the end of the 10th year after the owner's death. Annual beneficiary RMDs are also required if the owner died after their required beginning date. The required bidding date is April 1st of the year following, in which they first required to take their first RMD. So depending on the age where they were, if they were seven and a half at the time, 72, or eventually 10 years from now, 73. Let's give you an example. Jim inherited a traditional IRA and his 50-year-old mother, who died in 2020. Jim is a designated beneficiary who is an ineligible designated beneficiary. Because Jim's mother died before her required beginning date, Jim doesn't have an RMD until 2030. Distributions are optional till then. He must take the full amount, though, in 2030, which is the 10th year. Second example, Sally inherited a traditional IRA from an 80-year-old mother. Now now she's over 80. Mother, first one was age 50. She wasn't required yet. That's the difference. Sally's a designated beneficiary who isn't an eligible designated beneficiary because Sally's mother died after her required beginning date, therefore already having started RMDs. Sally must take an annual beneficiary RMD beginning in 21. She must also take a full distribution of whatever balance remains in by the end of 2030. So some interesting different scenarios that are there. I can keep going on with this. Uh, basically, but there is a waiver in there in case you messed up and you didn't take it, so something you need to be aware of. If, as always, you got questions for us, give us a call. Dick Donahue with Wealth Wake Up here on KGMI. Don't forget our live show next Saturday at 11 o'clock, and you can call me at 360-733-1200. Thanks, and have a good day. Voiced on the show are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a decision.